Yuri Denilchenko is Latitude's tech co-founder, and I've introduced him here a few times. What I find compelling about his story is that we can see clearly how his personal experience helped shape who he is and how he works. He was born naturally curious about technology and is a great translator between product, business, and tech. Yuri grew up in Russia during some history-defining moments and moved to the U.S., where he got his master's in artificial intelligence. He worked in several startups, and later in Brazil, he co-founded Vamos. In this episode, we discuss the tech job market, how to attract and keep talent, where the technology is heading, and how this will impact our lives and work. My name is Brian Reckworth, Vamos Latam. Yuri, here we are. Can you believe it? Just only 117 episodes ago, we, we had a chat on tech talent. Time flies, and I guess we've been busy, haven't we? Yeah. Hey, Brian. Uh, long time no see, I guess, but not really because we see each other every day. But yeah, it's been, a, it's been an intense two years. So yeah, I'm glad to be back and share some of the learnings from the field as well. Yeah, let's, let's talk a little bit about today, uh, you know, an update on the, on the business and also... Maybe we can share a little bit of what we've learned in these past couple of years. I think we got to kind of group together kind of 2020 and 2021 uh, were very distinct. And then 22 came along, particularly in the second half, and things have changed quite a bit. Love to get your perspective a little bit on kind of this transition that we've been in and how are you seeing things today compared to you know when we started? Yeah, so we, you know, we've been hard at work and kind of building teams and products at Latitude. For those who don't know, we also build software products for for founders, uh, and that kind of like gave us a you know deep insight into the market right now on how how the talent market is and the recruiting. I think we started right around the time when things were just kind of getting out of control with valuations and um, high demand for tech talent. We saw a lot of trends for global compensation. We saw folks kind of getting more and more of the U.S. and European salaries. Uh, we saw, you know, strong competition from international players in LATAM. LATAM is very convenient, right, especially for U.S. companies due to time zones. Uh, so a lot of that was happening. And then now we're seeing more of kind of like folks pumping the brakes. Uh, we obviously, everybody's on, you know, LinkedIn and other news uh, kind of outlets seeing layoffs. And with the economic kind of downturn, a lot of the tech companies were impacted. And so now we're seeing a lot of, kind of talent being uh, put back into the ecosystem. I, I think it's clear that the global compensation discussion is kind of dead. Um, I think for now, it's, again, the employer's market. Again, folks are going back to local compensation. And Alex from Deal, uh, CEO of Deal, has mentioned that in one of his posts. That's the data that they're kind of getting as well across the board. I think, you know, frankly, it's quite difficult for local companies making local currency to compete with global players. So it is a more fluid job market probably than 10 years ago, but the last two years, things seem to slow down. And I mean, there was a huge layoff in Google, for example, that included some of the engineering as well and all across the board. So I think it's safe to say that just these people saw this flight to safety in, in big tech and think that that's proven Yesterday, I had a call with the head of Mexico, uh, Twitter, and that whole entire office was closed, right? So this big kind of transformation in the last couple, call it six months, has really evidenced that, you know, I, I still think there's a buoyant local tech market that can absorb this, some of these layoffs, but it's definitely kind of shifted back to what it was kind of pre-spike, right, that we saw in 2020 and 2021. 
Yeah, and I think that's kind of interesting. We always talk about this at Latitude, right? Like that these kind of downturns or, you know, a crisis coming, uh, coming upon us is is actually an opportunity. It's actually an entrepreneurial starter. So a lot of folks, uh, I think it was uh, Alex Torrenegra, he mentioned that in one of his posts that a lot of these folks that were laid off actually super capable, entrepreneurial-minded folks that will go ahead and start companies. So we, we might even see a kind of a renaissance of startups coming out of that that situation. And what I've observed um, is that a lot of these like startups have kind of inflated themselves a little bit, right? So in that crazy chase for market share, and we had, you know, what, uh, 10, 12 years of abundance of capital, there's just been a lot of hiring and a lot of uh, inflating of the teams. And so to some degree, folks are kind of adjusting back to reality, to the actual revenue numbers, to actual growth numbers that they have, knowing that, the you know, follow-on capital may not be as easily available. So yeah, we're definitely seeing that slowdown and kind of readjustment to the new reality. But yeah, I think f- folks that are like, that are strong, uh, that have strong metrics, strong revenue, will continue to thrive and just be you know, more focused for, for this period of time. Yeah, I think that to your point, there, there's, a, there's a greater emphasis on productivity, it seems like, and that is a healthy thing, right? I remember at Vivaral, and this is always something that stuck with me. We had some very, we struggled with engineering, uh, particularly in the beginning, because we didn't you know, have a technical co-founder. I've been very vocal about one of the reasons why we partnered is because I was like, I'm not making that mistake again. And the reflection there was at one point, we decided to shift to this more engineering product mentality inside the company. And in it kind of taking inspiration from Marcos Galperin, who I remember Hernan Kazan and Nico Sakazi two of the founders of Kazek and founders of Meli, they shared the story of how Marcos got up and physically moved his desk and his computer and sat right in the middle of engineering. And I think that, you know, that's one thing that I did just to kind of send a message to the organization that, hey, we're focusing on this. But it's interesting how the pendulum kind of swings. And then all of a sudden I was like looking at the budget for the next year and I was like, I want 50 engineers. And that also is an unhealthy approach because the classic kind of Warren Buffett of nine women can't make a baby in one month is the same with engineering. Maybe you can share a little bit more about your reflections on productivity of teams. Yeah, you have to be definitely mindful. I've had those goals uh, set for myself, you know, at some of the companies I've been, at, you know, by investors like investors will give you those goals because uh, they do have a large pool of companies that they're looking at. So they can benchmark and kind of suggest uh, but the reality is you really have to look at your own roadmap and your velocity and like the business goals and to see if you're meeting them. It's been shown by research that top, top engineers are like 150, 200 times more productive than the average engineers. So the math doesn't work out uh, the way it does maybe with some of the other roles. I don't know, I'm just thinking here, maybe customer success where there's a certain amount of time that you have to cover, right, for a certain number of customers. Uh, and it's more predictable with these kind of jobs where you have creative leverage by writing code. You just have to understand the dynamic of, hey, small teams, tight product surface, um, and then just like the productivity is massive versus, you know, the more bodies you kind of throw at the problem, the communication overhead becomes unmanageable. And then, you know, of course, you have to have multiple layers of management. You have to have, you know, committees and this and that. Uh, it's a lot of times, yeah, you kind of actually end up slowing things down by throwing a lot of people at the problem. 
Yeah, on the contrary of that, like we, we've talked internally and, you know, we're, we're big kind of proponents of building in public. And we kind of got off to a little slow start in terms of hiring at, from our kind of standards. And the positive to that is that we were able to hire some really incredibly talented people. And so you kind of go a little slower to go fast later. Um, what are your reflections on that? And how do you kind of see that moving forward? I know it's not about volume of people. It's about the quality of people. But what are some of your reflections on that? And how do you kind of anticipate 2023 uh, will be different than 2022 for us from a, an engineering team? Yeah, I think the, the thing that's non-negotiable for me is always the bar. Uh, you have to keep the bar extremely high. Uh, so no matter what the challenges are ahead, you just cannot... Um, you know, lower your bar, or at least, you know, it's it's one of the things you have to take very seriously because if you hire the wrong person for solving a problem, then now you have two problems, right? You still have the original problem and you have to deal with the person you hired in some way, right? Like it's probably management overhead or, or helping them and, and supporting them. So yeah, I think taking the time makes sense. Uh, looking back, uh, you know, this is one of the advices I would give to folks is, Take the time to hone in on your hiring strategy and understanding exactly how that's going to impact your business. Because, you know, in our case, we kind of had a tall order, right? Like we wanted folks in LATAM that spoke English, that had that like super, you know, super experienced profile. And that's just like super difficult to find, especially in this, uh, in the hype times. I'm glad we didn't buy into the hype because if we started paying, you know, folks, uh, these kind of like US, uh, Silicon Valley salaries, and now things have gone down, you know, that's no longer reality. We would have been kind of stuck with a really difficult scenario in our hands. So, so yeah, I think the, the learning from there is being extremely clear about your strategy and kind of like what that, you know, what impact that has on the time that you're going to take to hire and also kind of like your, your business overall. And I think that there's a temptation when you raise a lot of money you know, to hire very senior people. And you know, in, in one case, you know, we looked at, at bringing on, you know, a, kind of a senior VP of engineering at one point, and we interviewed a few that we, we really loved, and we thought they would be great assets for the company. But you wisely pointed out, hey, look, we need people that are executing. We don't need a lot of people management at this stage because the team is small, and you're more than capable of managing the team at the size it is. And, and you know, you don't need the exact support if we're only scaling, you know, one or two products at this point. Um, so there's two kind of questions in here. One is the CTO versus VP of engineering kind of role, how you think about that. And then two, what are some of the mistakes that I might have kind of hinted at of overhiring or hiring someone too senior uh, or too early and kind of how, how should founders think about that when they're building their initial teams? Let's call it pre-product market fit or early product market fit. Yeah, I think the CTO versus VP of engineering, there's definitely couple of flavors there. There's not like one size fits all, but probably more of a common path is that, you know, the CTO will start the team out, build the initial product, kind of grow the team initially. And then as they scale to more strategic uh, role, or maybe they're taking on more of the product responsibility or something else, then they start needing somebody to support that kind of, because the engineering team, if you look at the trio, like that we usually see, right? Design, product, and engineers. Like engineering teams scale faster because you usually need, I don't know, eight, five to eight engineers uh, for each designer and PM. So yeah, you start needing that VP of engineering role to streamline the processes to start managing those folks. Uh, bringing them too early is definitely a challenge. I think it's a twofold uh, scenario. Number one is 
you're at, you, you might be hiring somebody from Amazon, Google, or, or Spotify that has you know built and managed teams of you know, 150, 200, you know, 500 engineers, which sounds impressive, but you just don't have that uh, complexity right now, right? You might have five or seven engineers. That means that this person, you know, will basically completely change what they're doing on a daily basis. You know, when they were maybe doing resource allocation, OKR planning and strategic communication, now they're like having to dive into the code base and doing pull requests uh, review. So I think that's the, the first problem is it just doesn't fit the, you know, the scenario that you have. And the second problem is you kind of create layers of abstraction that are very, very dangerous. I think, you know, as founders, when you're like pre-product market fit, you're building something new. You want to be super close to your customer and to your product uh, teams. And if you add those like senior hires, you just create layers of abstraction where things may happen or, you know, you may kind of lose sight of what's going on and lose control. Um, and then you only have so much time with early stage companies. So like if you lose six to eight months, that might be the only six to eight months that you have. You know? So uh, definitely a, a pretty dangerous situation there. What are your thoughts on the kind of classic dilemma of, I've seen the pendulum swing both ways on strong firm arguments around like you need kind of a, the CTO over here, VP of engineering, and then you need a VP of product over here. And, you know, maybe they'll both report to the CTO or in some cases there is this one unified role where there's one person that, that, you know, has product engineering underneath them. Uh, how, how do you, what do you think the pros and the cons of, of those two different kind of organizational structures are and what is your kind of inkling in terms of what what you prefer? Yeah, I mean, it's sort of um, it's sort of a trade off, right, between like maybe speed and balance. So if you have you know product engineering kind of handled by the same person, the decisions are faster. Um, you can move really quick because uh, there's no debate, there's no argument, and things kind of roll up to the same person. When you separate those uh, folks, you start having balance and also kind of being mindful of how large that scope is. You know, so this, as the company grows, you start having all these deep engineering issues. I mean, you might be optimizing MongoDB clusters or something like that. You know, it takes massive amount of technical knowledge. And on the other hand, you're also having to think about the roadmap and the competitors and the, the market size and things like that. So it's it's hell of a job to do all that at a scale company. So my my take would be, you know, usually, I mean, you're lucky if you have one technical slash profile uh, on the founding team, as we see at Latitude. So usually it's one person that kind of gets things going, uh, builds the initial product and the team. And then I see it healthy as the company scales beyond a certain point to start separating those roles. And whether that's a, you know, VP of product, VP of engineering reporting to, you know, the CTO or whatever, or if you have like a CPO, CTO model. It is healthy to just create more balance uh, and more of a kind of like a healthy debate there. And um, also kind of like being mindful of how much scope that those two roles really require. Yuri, question for you. You, in your thesis, your master's thesis, I think you wrote a paper on artificial intelligence and how that may kind of replace some, you know, engineering. And you wrote this. What is, is that correct? Am I remembering that correctly? Yeah, I was trying to take a stab at replacing engineers with uh, <laughs> with software or yeah, with machines. Um, it, you know, it was it was kind of early thoughts on the topic, and I think folks have been making a lot of progress on that as well. Yeah, yeah, what year um, was that? What year did you write that? I think it was 2010, something like that. 2010. All right, so 
we're in the chat GPT era now and things have changed quite a bit. Is it your sense that part of the future of engineering will, you know, you've seen these incredible interfaces for, for example, landing pages where you can actually describe where the landing page, what, you know, I want a dog, whatever, dog walking, you know, uh, app for, and create a form. And then all of a sudden it spits out this design. Um, in your mind, do you think that, you know, one of the next generation of, of engineering is going to be being able to manage the control panel of artificial intelligence and being able to direct artificial intelligence in an in a intelligent way that creates a shortcut for producing? So it becomes less about the deep skills of, of, of actually coding and more about managing. It's kind of like, you know, if you think about, you know, maybe someone that was like really good at you know, managing how to a search engine in the beginning that was just more efficient at finding information because they understood how to kind of engage with, with Google to extract the information you need. Is that going to become a skill of engineers in the future? And how far away are we from that in your mind? Yeah, so like when I took a stab at it, it was sort of a similar idea. I was trying to observe the team I was working with. Uh, yeah, I was working at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. It's like one of the largest uh, children's hospitals in the U.S., and I was observing a team that we had there, and a lot of it was kind of repetitive tasks uh, around data extraction, data preparation for research, for medical research. And so I started noticing there are some patterns, right? So my thesis was kind of that idea is like, hey, can we use case-based reasoning to extract those patterns, to extract those kind of recipes and like just combine them in the, you know, kind of creative ways to create more and more complex programs. And so, uh, you know, this, my thesis was before this whole renaissance of AI happened, which is amazing to watch. I don't think I've been as close to this area to, you know, claim myself an expert, but what I see is a lot of these tools are kind of evolving right now as more of the assistant. So we do have uh, so, you know, software now like Autopilot, for example, that helps engineers um, write code, you know, and I think there'd be more and more of those. Um, where basically some of the maintained things that engineers have to do, you know, go to Stack Overflow and find the snippet of the code that does, you know, a specific task. Those things will be more and more kind of uh, automated. And then more of the complex creative work around engineering will still remain. You know, maybe somebody needs to tweak the algorithm, invent a new algorithm. I think that'd be a bit harder. Although with time, who knows, maybe even that will be automated. So uh, right now I kind of see those stepping stone being an assistant, AI assistant for engineers, for writers, for, you know, everybody. Because like even with writers, I mean, you you work uh, a lot with copy, right? Like in communication, it's easy to see how something would help you write a, a good email to a partner. Uh, but it's hard to see something that would like write a, you know, a novel or like write Harry Potter. Right? Like it's, it's a bit of a taller, uh, taller order. So we'll see how that evolves. But I kind of see the stepping stone being assistant, and then who knows, maybe completely replacing some specific functions. Hey there, are you learning some good lessons in this episode? I hope so. The founders and angel investors we have on our fellowship programs learn things like this throughout the entire experience. In the Explore Fellowship, we help you kick off your next big idea. With the Angel Fellowship, you can expand your impact as a startup investor. Be sure to check out latitude.com to find out how to apply for our fellowship programs. Now let's get back to the episode. Thanks a lot. Transitioning a little bit, you know, as a startup founder, I know that attracting top talent, you know, is challenging, right? Like, I mean, I remember the first days of Viva Real, 
and we're trying to convince people to join and it's like you don't have a lot and you're it's kind of like a lot of excitement about what's coming in the future but there's not anything really concrete in the beginning what would you say is the importance of of developing an attractive kind of employer brand how can a startup effectively communicate its unique culture and value proposition to potential candidates yeah so for early early folks i think there's a simple realization that it is important is people will join your startup because of you, not because of, you know, um, your, your projections or your deck or all that stuff. Of course, the vision is important and the problem you're solving. But again, that's very attached to the founder, right? That's very attached to kind of what they believe in. So a lot of the times I, I just, you know, kind of stating the obvious, but helping the founders realize like, hey, your network, people that trust you, people that you know well, are your best candidates to join on this crazy journey because you're going like on this small plastic boat out in the open ocean, right? It's super dangerous. Uh, and then people are like, okay, well, I've done, I've done some stuff with this person before and I trust them. So uh, that's, that's kind of like the early, early uh, stages. And then of course, you know, building in public is something I've learned from you, you know, like in at Latitude, uh, I think it's been super powerful. Just sharing what you're building, sharing why you're building it, how you're doing it just kind of automatically engages a community of people around. And then when you need uh, you know, to tap into that for referrals or for talent, you can definitely do that. Um, I think one important idea is that if you're going after tech talent, it's important to have a tech brand, not just a brand, right? So even before we started uh, kind of sharing more about the software that we're building and our engineering team practices, which we've been doing recently more and more openly, we talk to folks. It's like I love Latitude. It's it's amazing. But you know, do you, are you building software? Why do you need engineers? And so, like creating that clear clarity and creating that clear message and delivering that that hey, we are a tech company. We're building these things. This is how we're doing it. Um, so yeah, just having a brand that doesn't necessarily short, shortcut you to uh, a good pool of technical talent. Yeah, I think that's been a big initiative for us. Right in the last call, it a couple months, we've had to transition into more public declaration that we're, you know, that we're building tech products or we're building a tech company. Because what happens is you, you end up getting pigeonholed in whatever kind of initial thing that you do. And it's like, you know, oh, Latitude is a fund because we've made investments. Latitude is a community. Those are all correct. But unless you're intentional about how you position yourself and at the core of what we're doing, we're building a venture-backed company. You know, we've raised venture capital. We see an incredible opportunity to reduce friction for early stage founders in Latin America. And we have the thesis that we can build tremendous value and upside for investors and for ourselves as founders and, and all the shareholders by building software that helps founders. And we think there's a, you know, a, an incredible opportunity there. But if we don't kind of manifest that and state that, we get kind of thrown into this bucket of, and I think it's a great lesson in just owning the narrative about your business. I experienced the same kind of uh, experience when I was building my last company and prop tech company, and there was a handful of other prop tech companies coming up. And we weren't on the fundraising circuit because we were kind of more of a mature company. We were working towards profitability. And when these other companies came to market, they kind of communicated what our positioning was because we weren't owning our own narrative. And then at that point, you know, the the perception of us was completely I would say disconnected or slightly disconnected with the reality. And so I think the lesson there is if you don't tell your own story, someone else will. And so you've got to control the airwaves about your business. Uh, otherwise, you know, you're, you're going to end up 
uh, you know, being perceived in a certain way. And we, we have had these recent discussions about perception is, is reality in some cases. And, you know, in, in, in the case of how people see you, I think that's a good example of making sure that you can kind of control that narrative. So um, for everyone listening, we, we, we've transformed into a tech company. And, uh, and that's why I think you know, this conversation is important. Yeah, and I just want to share a few tactical things for folks to to actually do, you know, to to build that tech brand. I mean, number one, you can very simply just like put a spotlight on your team. So if you have a few engineers, you know, uh, be vocal about it, why you brought them on, what experience they have, kind of like you see companies do this like uh, spotlighting, uh, putting spotlight on their team members. That's one. Another one is just starting something like a tech blog where you could write, you know, in your initial architecture decisions about things you're building, kind of like the solutions you're coming up with. And right now we launch another initiative, which is Tech Talks, you know, obviously to help early stage founders in Latin America kind of like get more of an abundance of that talent and more folks excited about early stage. But it also helps us kind of flush out um, our thinking in, in terms of tech and kind of invite the best, the best minds to the table. Uh, we've done this at Escali. It was uh, is very, very effective as well. Because when I joined Escali, it was kind of viewed more of a, as like a marketing and sales organization. And then by doing this, by sharing you know, through tech talks and inviting the community to us, uh, we, we kind of quickly built a, a tech brand. Speaking of tech talks, we I ran into Andre Peña, who is from Quinto Andar. Uh, this week we had dinner and. Uh, he politely accepted and with enthusiasm uh, to join our next tech talk. So hopefully we'll have him on here soon. Uh, he's built an incredible tech organization. I think they have 800 people in their product engineering team. Uh, they built incredible products. It's you know definitely a renowned product in in Brazil, and you know they're expanding across Latin America. So uh, great to great to have more of those people sharing their experience. And I love having not just you know CTOs or you know heads of technology organizations, but, you know, he's a founder also. So he was, you know, in the trenches, building the first MVP, you know, doing the scheduling manually to, to, you know, visit the properties. And then it's like, okay, let's automate this out. And, and I think it'll be great, a uh, great conversation. So looking forward to that one as well. Yeah. Amazing. I'm, I'm also looking forward to that. The first one, for those of you who couldn't join, we had with Danny from Corner Shop, you know, also amazing story. Uh, built it from day zero. Uh, and also we had Jared, one of our own engineers, you know, principal engineer on our team. And the next one is coming on the March 13th. We're going to talk to James, who's a product manager for Kotlin at, at uh, Google. Kotlin is a new language that's quickly growing. And um, yeah, he's going to talk about how Google transitioned to it and how it could be useful for early stage folks as well. Now, let's see. Startups, you know, we've got limited resources, right? And you know, that makes it a little difficult to compete with, you know, larger companies for tech talent, especially if, you know, consider the kind of work from anywhere scenario. So what's the current situation? Are, are there any suggestions that you'd give to startups to attract the best candidates? So Yuri, usually you highlight the importance of soft skills for tech workers, which I hate the word soft skills because soft skills are hard. So we shouldn't call them soft skills. We should call them hard. There's nothing, nothing harder than soft skills. <laughs> yeah, and there's nothing soft about having uh, the, the ability to communicate and listen and, you know, and, and uh, you know, it's important for leadership. So any examples of when that made a huge difference when solving a tech challenge? And I asked this question because I think you're very skilled at this. Uh, I've had the pleasure of working with you now for, uh, I'm going to say it in, in months, about 30 plus months, which uh, 
we've had very few altercations and you're just a very clear communicator. You communicate your needs very well. Uh, you don't come, come in emotionally charged on things and you're a very, you're a good listener. So talk a little bit more about how companies can assess those skills because I found that the engineers that have the technical capacity combined with the ability to communicate and work in a team environment, they have massively larger impact on, on their organization. And so I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on that. Yeah, definitely important to have uh, solid soft skills, you know, for, for early tech hires. And everything I talk about is like I try to bring to the reality of early stage startups because you know, that's what we live and breathe at, at Latitude. One of the things I've noticed is that, you know, early on, the team is just so small that it feels like you have roommates, you know, it's like you're always together and you're just bumping into each other. So if somebody is not easygoing or not positive or, you know, just hard to work with, it, it can be super brutal, right? Like it's just hard to survive. So just being mindful of that side of things, just like we have a virtue, right, of uh, glass half full, seeing, seeing things in positive light, reacting in a positive way. Important and also communication is the one that I kind of observed over the years with uh, technical talent and you know, engineers, especially uh, communication often gets overlooked. It's like, oh well, this you know this person is a is a genius with code; they can do all these things, and then uh, communication kind of becomes a second um, kind of second priority. I think for early stage, especially, it's super important, right? Because if you don't have early engineers with that product mentality, with that solid communication then you're paying a huge tax basically on every single email, every single Slack message, every single meeting where you have to kind of translate back and forth between different areas. Um, it just, be, just slows you down tremendously. So in our case, uh, I want to give an example and a shout out to Alessandro, who we brought on early as one of the early engineers. And the first challenge he tackled was, you know, kind of leading the kind of community product that we have, right, to, to power our community the digital community that we have. And so in that scenario, we actually didn't have a PM, you know, we didn't have a product person. And so, and it was a lot of stakeholders. It was a difficult uh, scenario for communicating. And he just like took that on and was able to communicate super effectively and build things that, you know, were pragmatic, build things that brought value. And we just like had that massive push within six months or so. So that's an example of, you know, a person that maybe. If it, if they just purely had a you know engineering skills, the coding skills would just completely fall apart in that scenario. Yeah, it's it's a critical skill, and I want to ask another question around the current environment. So maybe there's some founders that are listening, and maybe they're in a situation where look, they went out to go raise some money, they struggled a bit, they've had to lay some people off. Maybe they're struggling, taking longer to find product market fit than you know they'd hoped. And things are a little bit, you know, let's call it like a, an environment that's a little kind of um, a lot of uncertainty and difficult moment. I've heard of examples like this where the best engineer in the team is starting to get worried. And then they, you know, they come and they say, look, it, I'm just, I don't think this is working. I think, you know, I'm, I'm not feeling great about where we are. And then they ask for a 30% increase because they're just feeling unsecure about the situation. What would you say to someone that is not 100% happy and then just ask for you know, some kind of like demand there on, on increased salary kind of out of the blue because things aren't going as well? 
it's tough at early stage, so you might have to make some compromises, of course, because uh, the show must go on. But ideally, I'm I'm with kind of Netflix on that, that their philosophy of just being on top of it all the time, uh, making it very clear what's the trade-off between maybe compensation and equity, you know, early stage and things like that. Because the reality is if, um, you know, if folks kind of have that demand, that means there's something that's not connected, you know, in the past. It's something that was not negotiated, something was not communicated correctly, and they don't understand the trade-offs that they made when, when joining the team. Also, it sounds like, you know, in this scenario, if a person just approaches it from that, um, that side, it, it kind of shows maybe a lack of a little bit that of uh, entrepreneurial mentality. It's like, hey, we're building this together. I took a bet on the company. And like, if the company's struggling, going asking for money, for more money, it's just not, not the right move. Um, but yeah, I think in general, my philosophy is that it's working super hard as leaders and as founders to think about it from even before day zero in the sense, you know, as you're interviewing, make sure you don't bring people with that mentality on board. It's like, hey, like if you're only bringing a person onto the team because you gave them a 15, 15% raise for, you know, from their previous job, that just shows you like the motivation there, right? So you want to ideally maybe folks even take a small pay cut, you know, um, whatever that is, you know, 10, 15% because you're giving them more equity because they're going to be attached to, you know, a strong purpose. They want to be part of early team. They want to build things from, from scratch. So I would say that situation, you know, if you have additional folks, you might want to just take a hit and, and realize that it's not the right profile. If, uh, if that's your only shot right now at making it through these dark times, maybe you can you know, negotiate something for the short term and then kind of build up your team later with the, the right profiles. Now, another thing I think about, and this is similar to like sales, it's similar to raising a venture fund, but it's not done until it's done. It's not done until the person is officially accepted and they start working. From offer to like full commitment and full on board, any strategies to think about if you're a founder and you're like, you're hiring a key person, your team. One thing that I think we've reflected on is like, send some swag you get some latitude sandals in the mail all of a sudden after the person's accepted and you start wearing, you know, you're, you're at the beach on the weekend in, in, in Santos in Brazil. It's hard to, to walk back on that, that initial agreement of like, Hey, I'm, I'm joining the team. Uh, obviously the, the person needs to be super motivated. And if there's any doubt, then that's, that's not good. But any other thoughts on terms of like bringing it across the finish line for those key hires? Yeah, like we we nerded out hard on this at at Escali, for example. I mean, we we used to have an office in like a really dodgy area in the center of Sao Paulo, and so like even we would like order Ubers to take people home, you know, so didn't they didn't feel unsafe like coming out of the building maybe late after the interview. Uh, we would send the like you said swag to the you know to their building, leave it like at the portero. For those who don't know, like in, in Brazil, you, know, you usually have like somebody at the door there, like on the apartment building. We would send like personally, uh, like um, handwritten uh, notes from the founders, you know, so like anything like that, that's an emotional touch. I think in the remote world, the game changes a little bit, but still, you know, um, connecting with the founders is a must. I always say early stage, like don't outsource this to your team. So like, oh, I hired a, let's say maybe a senior engineer and they're hiring the team. Make sure in those conversations, make sure you sell the vision, make sure you connect with the person on the purpose and on the emotional level. 
and not just like, hey, like nuts and bolts, you know, this is what we do. This is your you know, responsibility. That's the stack. And, you know, this is your salary. People with early stage need to connect to the purpose. They need to be bought in like, hey, latitude, you know, we hear this over and over. It's like, oh, my God, I'm so motivated by helping early stage founders in Latin America. Um, the other trick that startups have up their sleeve, uh, maybe against, you know, some of the larger companies also is uh, talking to investors and advisors, right? So if your startup has impressive investors and advisors, have them chat with these top folks that you feel like maybe on the fence, because I can almost guarantee you those people do not have access to that uh, that kind of you know those kind of people where they are right now. They may be at you know Jim Pass or Quinto Andar or whatever any other of these uh, large startups, but they probably are not talking to their investors. And those maybe may the same investors that you have, you know, as those folks, maybe the advisors, maybe people that built three, four companies already successfully. So people realize that like, oh, these are the types of folks I'll be chatting with and they'll be my mentors. Yeah, I think the, the strong signal that provides having a couple of logos from a couple couple top firms is definitely like a strong signal that probably provides comfort and, and belief that the company, you know, is, can be, you know, is well backed and, and, and well supported. I, I was in a session yesterday with Angie, who is one of our mentors at Latitude she was head of people at early days of Mercado Libre and, and OLX, and then also uh, working at Kazek. And I think that one thing that she said yesterday, last night, when we were kind of you know, hanging out, is that there's three things that matter. It's persona, propósito, y progreso. Those are the three, three things that people care about, right? The people, the purpose, and the progress. And so I think addressing those three things are, are really important. Of course, there's a bunch of subcategories there in, in, in progress. Like, what does that exactly mean? Uh, and but people want to work with really high caliber people. I think that's something that we've seen. You know, we've brought on some new people recently, and they admire the other people that they that, that we work with and look up to them, or feel like they're going to be able to learn something from them. And so I think that's uh, providing you know an opportunity to you know to develop yourself because of the people you're surrounding yourself by is uh, I think a, a really important uh, component, particularly in engineering, right, where the motivation to learn is very driven. It's, it's the, the, you know, obviously money is an important one, but if you look at the list and this is something that, that I typically do when I'm recruiting someone is I try to discover what the things they care about. I ask them to write it down in an Excel spreadsheet. I ask them to stack rank it. And then I ask them to sign a multiple on number one, 1. 1.5, number two, 1.4, and then create a little calculation uh, to understand what they actually value and be able to compare that with other opportunities. But I think that particularly in engineering, the, the opportunity to learn and work with really smart people is, is probably the biggest motivator from what I've seen. Yeah, I think doing that framework uh, that you mentioned of having folks like go through their reasoning is brilliant because uh, ironically, most people don't have clarity on this. You know, They're just kind of like going from one company to another, maybe from one job to another. They may not be fulfilled, but they don't know exactly why. They don't know exactly what they're looking for. So just giving them that framework actually helps them uh, sit down and be honest with themselves about exactly what they're looking for and what they value. So yeah, I think that's that's brilliant. And the the way I look at it, you mentioned about the the team. I mean, in in Brazil, we say gente boa traz gente boa, right? Like good people bring good people. And so I look at the team as almost like a gravitational pull. So the more amazing folks you add, the stronger the gravitational pull is, and the more amazing people get attracted. It also works the other way around. So if you take those shortcuts, right, coming full circle to the beginning of our conversation, if you take those shortcuts and you're like, oh, well, 
you know, I'm short on time, short on this. Maybe I, you know, hire a person that I know is not that amazing. The next amazing person will look at the team and say, mm, I don't know if I want to work with those folks. I don't know if I can learn from them, right? So, um, of course, early stage, you have to survive and do whatever it takes. But when you make those trade-offs, you have to be super aware of like what, how you're setting yourself up for the future. Yeah, you've mentioned before that a good middle ground is if you're unsure is hire them on a project basis or you know, to deliver yeah. on, you know, and I think that's a smart one. And uh, regarding the framework that you mentioned, I actually learned that from my former CTO. So, because when I was recruiting him, when I was recruiting him, he did that for himself. And I was like, this is a brilliant framework. You know, I was like, I'm going to use this on every single hire that I make from now on. And it's, uh, it's funny. And it, it's very similar to like just the traditional like sales process where you discover the, what people value. Right. And then you identify if you're able to deliver on that. And it's a great kind of discovery process for, for the person. And then also it gives you the, the, the points that you can highlight as you're trying to persuade somebody. If you're trying to sell them on a bunch of things that they, they don't care about or you know, promote certain things that they don't value, you're going you know, to be wasting your breath. Uh, I think just uh, being radically candid with people during the process is also super important. I see companies kind of misinterpret information, you know, and the candidates misinterpret information and like nothing gets kind of said. It's sort of this weird dance where, you know, um, you, you don't say much, you ask the questions, the person doesn't know if the answer is, is actually hitting the spot. And then you kind of walk, you know, walk your separate ways. Be super candid about with the candidate about what's happening, how the team has received it, what the concerns are. And then, you know, they'll feel the same uh, with you and they'll share the concerns about the company. Uh, I love another thing we do, like super tactical, right, with uh, with offers. It's like before we s- tell the offer to the person, we say, hey, aside from the compensation, is there anything else that's on your mind? Is there anything about the team, the purpose? The-? So that really kind of isolates that question and becomes clear to the person like, hey, like everything is amazing and I'm only making a choice based on this like sort of monetary uh, criteria, you know, so like whether I can you know, join this amazing mission if I can kind of make it work financially versus um, not having that clarity. So yeah, I like that tactical thing that we do in the, in the offers. Yeah, I think that, that is a really important thing. And it's something that I learned in my first kind of sales job when I was 19 is really just repeating the reasoning why if, if someone is you know unsure about what their, their concerns and then isolating those concerns and then you know trying to address those concerns. Uh, there, there's, you know, there, there's a process that you can do. Just have better communication. So that's something that I think makes sense when you're having that discussion. Hey there. You might be thinking about how hard it is to build a venture-backed company. Well, I know firsthand, and I made some mistakes along the way. We lost over $100 million in capital gains taxes because of the company formation mistake that I made. I don't want that to happen to you. That's why we built Latitude Go. We provide an optimal offshore structure for your startup and we do it in record time. And guess what? It's five times less expensive as other options, and we use the same legal documents as the top-tier law firms. To find out more, check out latitude.com forward slash go. Now, let's get back to the episode. Let's talk a little bit more about, you know, building strong foundations for teams. And I think that one of the things that uh, I recall from your days at Escale is that you had a, a, a quite a, a diverse team with different backgrounds. And so what are some effective ways to increase diversity in tech hiring? That's something that is quite 
on the top of minds of a lot of people. Um, but it's you know something that I think people don't really one they might not value. Uh, they might they might think is something that is more charitable work, which in our case at Latitude we we believe that it actually just enriches the opportunity and provides a, a stronger team. So love to hear your perspective on that. Yeah. So just for just a quick benchmark, um, the average number I would say in Brazil is around five percent of engineers are women. At Escali, we had a uh, thirty-five percent women on the engineering team. So like that was you know way way above the the average, and I think it's even above the average of like the international benchmarks. I don't think I've done it like single-handedly. So you know definitely a shout out to the team there. Escali is a very diverse organization. I felt a lot of support. So you know we had during the process strategically we had you know uh, you know female recruiters that would like make the candidate comfortable. We nerded out on the language of the job posts and things like that, just to make sure that we were not isolating those candidates. But, you know, it's a, it's an uphill battle. It's super tough for a small team, right? So if you go back to that number, like it's only 5%, um, you know, women and in, in engineers in Brazil, like then, you know, probably is similar across LATAM. And okay, if you're building a small team, you know, it may be, uh, five or six folks, uh, it's really, really hard to to guarantee that kind of like 50-50 split. I think hopefully the founders already, you know, um, thought about this problem before and hopefully they already have diverse networks from previous companies and previous experiences. And then, you know, tapping into that is easier. So, you know, hey, like I had you know, some female engineers on the teams that I worked at, I can reach out to them, ask for referrals or ask them if they'd be willing to join. Um, you know, and then some of the tactical things we do during the hiring process is we proactively reach out to diverse candidates. We want to make sure that there's a certain percentage of them in the pipeline. And if we don't get them, you know, inbound, then we go out and proactively look. And that's the same thing we do for the fellowship, right? So we go out and proactively look for uh, female entrepreneurs and, you know, the same thing for the fund LPs. Um, and then, yeah, even if you have a pipeline, just simple things like reaching out to the diverse candidates first, giving them you know, that head start and making sure you, uh, you kind of prioritize those candidates is a simple thing you can do to, to increase the chances of uh, bringing diversity into your team. How do you think it makes the team better? I think at a very fundamental level, we're building solutions for other people, right? And so if the society is diverse, which it is, you know, especially if you just look at gender, 50% women and men, then if you have a product team that's only men, uh, it'd be very difficult to build a solid product for the society, right, for the for your users. So you're basically just baking in those limitations um, into the product, into your thinking. Uh, a good example of that is like, you know, um, Facebook had this uh, a while back when they mentioned they were launching the product in India and then having folks from India on the team actually allowed them to catch some of the mistakes and the copy and the approach because some of the uh, things they had in the product were, were going to be perceived negatively in that market. And they just like quickly fixed that, right? So recognizing that the products are being built for that diverse society and then you need a diverse team to tackle that challenge like, you know, in 360 kind of. Wrapping up here, Yuri, let's talk about or get your perspective on, you know, the evolving kind of tech trends, what's happening, what's coming, and then maybe a little bit more on what's on tap for, for Latitude this year. Yeah, the, the big trends for me that I watch are you know, the AI things that are happening, right? Like AI related projects. I mean, we, we see the 
uh, ChatGPT uh, coming out. Um, we see kind of Microsoft working with those folks. We see, um, you know, Google kind of like reacting to that. Go ahead, Brian. I was going to say it's it's no no secret that Microsoft also owns GitHub, right? Uh, yeah. Which is kind of inter- interesting, right? It's kind of an interesting thought. Microsoft has changed dramatically uh, from the time that I was kind of like a, you know early engineer in my career with the new CEO. They've just been making extremely strategic moves. Yeah, so I, I think developers, yeah, they have some developers, developers. No, <laughs> yeah, they've moved on. They've moved on from that to to very like they've they've invested a lot in open source and cloud. AI and they partnered with OpenAI very early, right? So a lot of the infrastructure that powers OpenAI so is provided by Microsoft. So, anyways, yeah, I think AI is definitely going through a huge transformation right now. Um, Google is reacting to that, and I'm sure we'll see a lot of other folks because it kind of sets the bar, right? So now that we see what's possible, a lot of other companies will jump in and also like thrive on that think, opportunity. Do you think we're going to see a huge amount of AI companies? get funded without like really strong fundamentals because a lot of the investors don't understand the applications or, you know, since it's such a new territory, I, I wonder if it's, you know, we're going to see kind of the, a little bit of an artificial boom here because it's kind of like you throw AI in front or at the end and then all of a sudden it's very hard to assess as an investor if what the technology said can be done is actually done or having the impact that you that you think it will so are we in the in for a rude awakening in terms of a lot of investors just riding a wave uh when there there hasn't really been really clear practical applications about business models associated with this yet yeah i think it's definitely possible to a certain degree we saw that with crypto right like there was a lot of activity and it's really hard to understand if that's you know a practical application of the technology behind it, you have to dive pretty deeply, and I think that sets you know very product-minded or technical uh, investors up apart from the rest. And so, if I was you know if I was to give a, a tip to investors that are planning on investing in those companies, definitely looking for advisors, right? Bringing folks closer to actually know and having like a close network of advisors that could actually look at the company and be like, okay, yeah, this is the real deal. And hopefully those folks work that on AI, like solid companies that, you know, have deep roots in that with, you know, Google and OpenAI and so on and so forth, or maybe even some, some academia, um, academia folks. Uh, but yeah, definitely, definitely possible that we'll see some of that kind of like some of that bubble uh, explode. And uh, I think Sam Altman from YC put it well. It's like if you have any company that says, you know, we do AI for blah, it's like usually not a good sign, you know, usually. People that do AI on a very deep level, they try to hide it uh, more than speak about it openly because it's like a huge advantage that they have. So if they have, you know, like three professors from Carnegie Mellon on the team working on some deep machine learning uh, stuff, they usually try not to highlight that too much. So they say, you know, like we're we're improving the speed of delivery, you know, for for food or, or something like that. So just be mindful of you know the opening act. If that if the AI is written on all the slides, uh, maybe there's something, you know, that's that's not that's not right. That's that's counterintuitive, but it makes a lot of sense when you say it. Uh, it's you know it's yeah. kind of well. Listen, Yuri, it's been a, it's been a great chat. Any last words you want to share about what's on tap for Latitude? Yeah, I mean, um, we're super excited about expanding our company formation product, Latitude Go. 
Uh, we've had, uh, you know, great traction with it, with founders. Founders love it. Uh, and basically, it allows you to spin up offshore structures for for startups. Currently in Brazil, we'll also expand that to other countries. So we're going to double down on that, add more use cases. We've added tostadas, what we call them, which is, a, a, you know, usually you do a Cayman sandwich, which is a Cayman structure. And we're, we're doing now a Delaware structure, which is kind of like a lighter, cheaper structure for folks to get started. And then... What we've been hearing from founders is there's a lot of challenges once they get the structure set up to kind of get going with the financial stack, right? It's like, how do we, you know, uh, manage, how do we take the money? How do we kind of send the money to the local operating company? How do we manage that? So we've been looking at that space and we're, uh, you know, working on that. And there'll be something exciting coming out uh, from Latitude this year. Awesome. Well, we've got some tech openings. So uh, let's not be shy about that if you're, what do we got? Front end, uh, you know, recruiting a front end. What else do we got on the on the on the the stack? Trying to yeah, we're currently looking for like information security specialist um, and a front end engineer, yeah, senior staff level. Uh, would love to have those folks uh, with you know regulated backgrounds, so legal tech, fintech. If you're interested, if you want to work on incredible team, we have some phenomenal folks already on board. Uh, please reach out and uh, yeah, check out our you know, side, check out our YouTube channel, check out our LinkedIn to see the team. And um, hopefully you'll be as impressed as we are with what we've built so far. Thanks, Yuri. Great, great to chat. Um, I'll see you uh, in 117 episodes from now. We're probably, <laughs> probably, probably sooner, but, uh, but thanks. Uh, thanks for pop- popping on and uh, really enjoying all the stuff we're working on and exciting, exciting stuff. Uh, in the oven. So we'll talk soon. All right. Thanks for taking the time. Sounds good, Brian. Good to be here. Talk later, man. Thank you for listening to Latitude Podcast. Subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast for more talks with great founders and investors. I'm your host, Brian Reckworth. Almost Latam. See you next week.